Good morning. How are we? It's full house. I, I didn't know if the faithful remnant was going to be here today or if everybody would make it back from Thanksgiving. So I'm glad you guys are here. It's good to see a full house this morning. Hey, one quick thing before we jump in together. I want to tell you about something important about our first Thursday gathering in the month of December, uh, which would be on the 7th. We're not having a first Thursday gathering uh, in, in the month of December. And the reason being is because obviously the holidays and all the craziness that ensues, but hope for Christmas is just a couple of days after that as well. So um, We'll all be busy. There's a ton of us serving at that event, so we'll, uh, we'll be very busy that week. We're going to take that month off, and we'll be back to our normal first Thursday schedule in the month of January. All right, well, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to take them out. Join me in Mark chapter 12, and uh, we're going to continue in our time together today. As, we, as you guys turn there, I'll share with you a little bit about myself. I am someone who has a fairly terrible memory, especially around important things. You can ask my wife about this. I forget things all the time. And this is especially true when I look back at my childhood. Some of the earliest memories are, are pretty much long and gone for me. I don't remember a ton except for just highly critical, highly important things that happened when I was a kid. But as bad as my memory is of my childhood, there is one memory that I have never forgotten, nor do I think I ever will, and it was this. There was a, a period of time for about three to four months when I was eight or nine years old that I would go to bed every single night and I would be completely and utterly gripped by fear. Now, you may think that for an eight or nine-year-old boy to go to bed and be gripped by fear is maybe not that unusual, but mine was a little bit different because it was more spiritual in nature, meaning this. I grew up around the church as a younger kid, and I heard the Bible taught fairly regularly. And I remember over that three or four-month stretch, a lot of what was spurred on was actually when I was in church, and I was trying to figure some things out as a young kid. And so I would go to bed at night, and I would sit in my bed, and I would toss and turn, and I would sit up for hours. And what was plaguing me, and the thought that would run through my head constantly was this, this kind of big question. How do I know that I'm getting this right? And especially revolving around my Christianity, my faith, like, how, how do I know that I'm actually a Christian? How do I know that as a kid I can, I can have certainty and security in being a Christian, how do I know that I am getting this right? And that question plagued me for months. And I would bet you that for some of us today that are here, I would bet that many of us are, are, are maybe all too familiar with the idea of spiritual insecurity and spiritual fear. Maybe as you hear me talk about this kind of fear, maybe you can relate with that and understand that, yeah, maybe I do uh, lay awake at night. If I was actually honest enough with myself and I think about this question, like, how do I know that I'm going to get to the end of my life, stand before Jesus face to face, and he look at me and say, yes, you did exactly what I commanded you to do? Or how do I know that I'm not going to get there and, and realize that maybe I had it all wrong to begin with? I think some of us are far too familiar with that type of fear. And even some of you that have been following Jesus, maybe for a long time, and you're maybe a little bit more confident in yourself and a little bit more secure, I think if we were all honest enough with ourselves, I think at the end of the day, we want to know, can I be sure that I'm getting this right, that I'm living the life that God has called me to live? And so that's the big question that we're going to look at today from Mark chapter 12. But before we start to read together, I want to go back and just set the scene up, kind of set our story for where we're going to pick up. If you were here last week, you heard James preach on in Mark chapter 12 the story of Jesus having an interaction with a group of men called the Sadducees. 
And really, they were having this kind of argument. They had come to Jesus and tried to pin him. And the question revolved around marriage in heaven, but it really was more about the resurrection. And if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go watch it because it's fascinating stuff and well worth your time. But that was the story that we kind of looked at. Now, as Jesus laid out a perfect answer for these guys, there was another group of people, there was a bigger crowd that was on looking at what was taking place. And as that crowd is on looking, where we pick up our story today in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, is immediately after the events that we read about last week. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and go to Mark chapter 12, verse 28 with me. It says, And one of the scribes, came up and heard them disputing with one another. That was the Sadducees. And seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So directly after Jesus answers the question on the resurrection to the Sadducees the week before, there was this scribe that was one of the onlookers that was watching, and he was apparently intrigued by the answer that Jesus had given. Now, he was so intrigued, in fact, that he wanted to come back and ask another question. Now, the scribes are those people that we've read about time and time again in the book of Mark that have given Jesus so many issues throughout Mark. These are the guys that have, have tried to come to him and ask him trick questions, try to kind of pin his back against the wall. They wanted to kill him. They hated what he was doing and what he stood for. But this scribe on this day had heard how Jesus answered the Sadducees and apparently something in him began to shift. And the question that he came with wasn't a a trick question. It wasn't him uh, trying to pin Jesus up against the wall and trick him into a bad answer. He had a legitimate, sincere question for Jesus. And the question is this, Jesus, out of all of the commandments, which commandment is the most important of all? The scribe, who would have been someone who was very familiar with Old Testament law, wanted to know out of all of them, which is the most important. Out of all 613 laws that we see in the Old Testament, if I'm going to do just one of them right, which one do I need to do right? Some of you are all too familiar with this idea. You were that kid in school that walked into a class on day one and said, hey, teacher, what do I need to do just to pass? Like, what's the bare minimum required for me to get you off my back so I can pass this thing? That was the idea here. Like, if I'm just going to do one thing well, what do I need to do? And that was this scribe's question, and he had a sincere question. And the question that he's asking, I think we can relate to and maybe Make that a little bit familiar with us. I think at the end of the day, what he's asking is he's just heard Jesus teaching so eloquently. He's asking Jesus this question, Jesus, how can I know for sure that I'm getting this thing right? How can I know out of all the law you have given that I am actually doing this the right way? And so let's pick back up in verses 29 and 30 and see how Jesus responds back to him. Jesus answered and he said, the most important... Is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. In the first part of Jesus responding back to the scribe and what he ought to do, Jesus takes him to a very familiar idea. That verse that we just read, that idea that's captured in Mark chapter 12, verse 29 and 30, is not a new idea. It's something that this scribe would have been very familiar with. And here's why. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, you're going to hear that, those words from Jesus laid out almost verbatim. All right, back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6. This was also part of the 
Shema in the Israelite culture, meaning this. The Shema was a set of verses that the Israelites would have known, they would have memorized, they would have recited daily. They were expected to know the Shema. They were expected to teach it to their kids, to recite it with their families. They were to live by this kind of creed throughout their lives. And so Jesus, in this moment, is taking this scribe back to a very familiar idea. And the big picture of what Jesus is getting him to see here is this is that for the people of God, if we're going to start getting anything right, it starts in one place. And that is that you and I, as the people of God, are called to love him supremely. We're called to love him supremely. That the, the commandment from God, the first and foremost commandment that he gives to us, his people, Jesus telling us what the most important of all is, is he's commanding us that you and I are called to love God supremely, meaning he is uppermost in our affections. He is our deepest devotion and our greatest desire. We are called to love him supremely. Now, the idea of love is somewhat lost on us in our culture today, I think. And here, here's what I mean by this. If you were to ask me today if I loved my wife, I would tell you yes. But in that same conversation, if you were to ask me if I loved my dog, I would also say yes. Now, for my sake, at least you would hope that I love my wife and I love my dog a little bit differently, right? <laughs> we could do marital counseling if we need to. But, uh, but you would hope for me that I would love those things differently, Right? But in our culture, the way we have boiled love down is we've just said, we love everything. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my, uh, my husband, my spouse, my uh, friends. I love my favorite TV show. I love my animals. I love whatever hobby I'm into currently. And we've boiled this idea of love down to this. But the call from Jesus here to love God supremely and it's important for us to see is, is vastly different than the way you love your dog. The call from God, the call from Jesus here in this text is to, to love God with our, our greatest affection, our deepest devotion, and with a passion that is unrivaled should you compare it to anything else in your entire life, even your spouse and your kids. And so the commission from Jesus is we're to love God that way. Now, the question that I think that that sparks within us is, if we're going to be honest with ourselves this morning, and we're in church so we can be honest, do, do I actually love God like that? Do, does everything within me, if we were to kind of just strip your heart bare, and we were to lay it on the table and dig down to the, the deepest part, the innermost part of who you are, if we were to get your heart bare and on the table, would we be able to say, yeah, yeah, they love God with all of it, that God has a supreme love from this person? That's the question that we need to be asking ourselves. Now, as we consider what it means to have a supreme love for God, Jesus doesn't leave us guessing as to what that type of love looks like. He points us to two ways, if we're to love God supremely, that we're going to do it. And number one is this, he commands us to love God supremely by loving him for who he is. Loving him for who he is. Simply put, we do not get to make God up to, who, to be whoever we want him to be. We are called to love him for who he is. There is no us deciding who God is, what God is like, what we feel like he should do, what we feel like he should be like. The call for you and I is to love God for exactly who he is. This is important. In the, in the text, Jesus started that verse with this commandment. He said, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. 
And that is highly significant for the, for the scribe, and especially the people in the Old Testament, but it's just as significant for us today. Here's why it was significant for them. When God first gave that command to love the Lord your God, the Lord your God who is one, he gave them that to the Israelites who lived in a culture of polytheism. Meaning this, that the people lived in a culture where people had many different gods for many different things. And so instead of worshiping the one true God, what you had was people worshiping all of these false gods in his place. And so it was significant that God was clarifying to them that there is no other room for other gods. These other false gods, these other false idols that you may be tempted to bow down and worship, there's no room for that here. We are called to love him for who he is, and we don't get to make, up, uh, make him up to be who we want him to be, but we also don't get to have any other gods with him. We're called to love him as he is. And we get this, right? Like if I was to go home each day, my wife's name is Shelby. If I was to go home each day and, and call Shelby by other, the names of other women, right? How do you think that would go for me, right? Could, could get a little dangerous pretty quickly. Like if I walked home every day and said, hey, Samantha, it's good to see you today. And she would say, well, that's not who I am. I'll put it another way, make this simple. Uh, I'm a Star Wars fan, all right? And so any of my fellow Star Wars brethren, I'm glad you're here. Um, I see hands raised. This is good. We're in good company. Uh, I'm a Star Wars fan, and one of the quickest way to upset that area of geekdom in our country is to confuse it with Star Trek, all right? So if you were to come up to me after today and you said, hey, Zach, are you excited for the new Star Trek movie next month? I'm going to look at you and say, man, you are dead wrong. What is right? That's the quickest way to upset an entire fan base of nerds is to confuse Star Wars and Star Trek. It's the quickest way to do it. And, and what's the root of all of that? We want to be known for who we are, not what somebody else perceives us to be. You know this. You want to be known for who you are, not what somebody makes you up to be. And it's no different with God. We are called first and foremost to love him for who he is. Now, I love this about God because we don't have to guess about what God is like. You and I don't have to guess and, and try to dream up what we want God to be. We don't have to guess because he's disclosed it to us explicitly in his word. We don't ever have to guess what he's like. We, all we do is we pick up the book and we say, here's exactly who he's told us that he is, and we're to love him for who he is. And that is the call for the people of God, that we love God like that. Now, Jesus doesn't just stop at loving God for who he is. He also shows us what a love for God is needing to be expressed or what it's expressed like and it looks like in our lives. If we're called to love God supremely, not only are we called to love him for who he is, but we're also called to love him with all we have. We're called to love him with all we have. Jesus says in that verse, verse 30, that we're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, meaning Every single bit of you, everything you have loves the Lord. I'm going to walk through those four things really quickly so you can understand them. Uh, these four areas also have a little bit of overlap, but stay with me here. Uh, first, we're called to love God with all of our heart. The heart was the main part of the spiritual life, kind of the, the innermost part of who you are as a person. Uh, next, we're called to love God with the soul. The soul somewhat overlaps with the heart, but it refers to that part of your life that includes your feelings, your emotions, and your desires. Next, God calls us to love, uh, love him with our minds. This includes how you think and what you learn. And then lastly, strength. We're called to love God with all of our strength, meaning our everythingness. Everythingness is not a word. I made that up. Everythingness, kind of all of who you are, every single bit of you, and everything you have at your disposal, is called, you're called to love God with that. 
What Jesus is pointing us to, if we put it short and plain here, is that for his people, in order to love him supremely, it means that he has your entire life devoted to him. That there is not one single part of you that is covered and hidden from him. That that everything that you are and everything that you have expresses that that you have a deep-rooted passion, love, and zeal for God. And and, and so the question is, do do we do that? And put practically, let me just ask a few questions. Uh, From deep within your heart, if you were to get down to the bottom of your greatest affection, what would you find? To love God with all of our soul, uh, if we love him with our emotions, our passions, and desires, simply put, are you hungry for the Lord? Are you pursuing intimacy with him? Do you want to draw close to him every day? To love God with all of our mind, this is one that we toss out really quickly in our, in our kind of contemporary Christian culture today because we, we kind of regard theological study and biblical study as maybe legalistic or dry, cold, and dead religion, but God actually calls us to love him in that way. And so I, I've heard it said this way, all of us are theologians, some of us are just heretics. Meaning this, I'm not trying to be brash, all of us think things about God, some of us are just wrong. And so do we love God with all of our minds? And lastly, do we love God with all of our strength? Not only your physical being, but also what do you have at your disposal? Is how you love your wife, your husband, your kids, your family, do the resources you have, the energy you spend, does that reflect that you have a deep and abiding love for God? And that is the call for us that Jesus wants us to consider today. Does it, the entirety of who you are, love him. Do you love God supremely first and foremost by loving him for who he is and secondly by loving him with all you have? Now Jesus doesn't just stop at verse 30. The story continues and so we're gonna pick back up and see something that is just as important for us to see today. Pick back up in verse 31 with me. He says, the second is this, second commandment, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You have to love how Jesus operates, don't you? This scribe came up to him on this day, and he wanted to ask about one commandment. Jesus, what commandment, meaning which one, is the greatest of all? And I love how Jesus responds because he responds back and he gives him two. But here's why this is significant, and I'll explain why that's such a big deal in just a moment. Uh, we'll, we'll come back. I'll explain that in just a moment. But, but Jesus says that we are first called to love our neighbors as ourselves. So not only are we called to love God supremely, we're called to love others genuinely. That's the call for us from the word of God. He says that his followers are to be known in how they show their love for other people and those around them. Now, I want to clarify something that I think is so important for us to know about this. I think it is dangerous if we take what Jesus just said here and we boil it down to say this. Well, what he's really saying is we need to learn to love ourselves first until we can go and learn how to love others. I want to be careful with this because I've heard that taught before and and that's not what he's teaching here. What, What Jesus is teaching here is that you and I in all of our sin and all of our flesh, you and I do a really, really, really good job at loving ourselves. We wake up each day with a natural disposition to see how the world can serve us. Like most of us aren't waking up in the morning if you're married and looking over at your spouse and saying, I'm going to go cook her breakfast in bed. Like maybe if you're trying to earn brownie points, but that is not your natural disposition. Your natural disposition is to say, 
My goodness, I hope she gets up and makes me breakfast this morning. Or my goodness, I hope the kids will sleep in so I can have a good day today. Or my goodness, I hope that the coworker will just finally do what we're asking him to do and that he'll get his act together so that we can all function like we need to. Or I wish my neighbor would finally start to live in a way that more conveniences me. That's our natural disposition. It's we're really awesome at thinking about us. And I stand up here as the number one example of that. What we're not naturally good at is genuinely caring for the needs and concerns of others. And so what Jesus is not teaching here is to learn how to love yourself more. What Jesus is teaching here is you need to learn how to get your eyes off of yourself more and to get them looking outward. That's the call. That we love others as we have loved ourselves. There's a second part of love that I want you to see here. And this is important when we look at why Jesus gave two commandments instead of one. Jesus responds with two commands when the scribe asked for one because, and I want you to hear this, when you have a true, deep, abiding, supreme love for God, that must make its way out in how you love others. Let me say that again. If you have a supreme love for God, if you, if you want to say that, I, I, I love God, that is naturally, it must affect how you treat others. And not just your neighbors who you like, like not just families, uh, family members and friends that you like, how you treat everyone. It is impossible, impossible for us to say we love God and to hate other people. Impossible to us. And to show that to you, I want to show you from 1 John chapter 4.20. John says this. Hear these words. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Far too often we are quick to say that we have a love for God and yet we run over every single person that gets in our way. If any of you work in the restaurant industry or have been servers at a restaurant for the past kind of 10 to 20 years or so, I know one of the common themes that I hear from friends, especially, this breaks my heart, friends that don't know Christ, that work in the restaurant industry, they will tell you that one of their least favorite times to work is on Sunday within one to three hours after church services end. And why do they hate it? They hate it because that's when they get demanded the most from, that's when they get treated the worst, and they get tipped the least. And I don't see how the people of God can say, yeah, let's, let's be that way. God says, if you love me, that's going to impact and shape how you treat everyone you come into contact with. Every single person. There's, there's nothing that that will not change. Let me say this as well. If someone claims that they are a Christian, to use another example, and they are a racist, The love of God is not in them. It is impossible for for me to say, I love God and then hate someone simply because of the color of their skin. It's impossible. And should someone say that, 1 John is telling us that the love of God is not in them. God completely wrecks everything we know about how we treat and serve others around us. And the call for us is to become people who treat others with respect. We love others with grace. 
We treat one another with compassion, and we hold nothing back to show genuine concern and care and love for those around us. And it starts by having a supreme love for God, and it works its way out in treating others genuinely, loving them fully. So here in this text, Jesus gives us two primary commandments for the life of a Christian. And now the question becomes for us, how will we actually see our lives start to reflect this reality? And so to show you that, I want to pick back up. Go to verse 32 with me. Verse 32, the story continues. It says, And the scribes said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered him wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. After Jesus has perfectly put before this man a beautiful answer to the question of which commandment is the most important. The man restates back to Jesus and says, teacher, yes, you are right. You're right. Surely God desires that we would love him with all of our heart, that we would love him supremely and and love others genuinely. And surely that is better than any uh, whole offerings, whole burnt sacrifices and offerings that we could ever give him. Surely that is what God desires. And upon hearing the man's answer, Jesus acknowledges that he is understanding rightly, that he is close, but he's not there yet. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Now, you would think at this point we could just close the book up and walk away, do a holy hoorah, and say, hey, the Bible says we just need to go out and love God and love others, so let's just go do that. Because it's that easy, right? I mean, it's just that simple. At least that's how we've heard it taught over the years, that The great commandment is really pretty easy. Christians, man, we overcomplicate things far too often. We overcomplicate things when really Jesus just says that all you need to do is love God and love people. That's that's all we're supposed to do. But I want to caution us before we start to think that way. And I want to put forward the idea that living out the great commandment is not easy. In fact, it's far more difficult than you and I could imagine. And I will even go so far as to say that it is impossible to do under our own strength. Here's why I believe that to be so. What Jesus is teaching here, again, is nothing new in the greatest commandment. Stated in the Old Testament pretty explicitly. And even the man's response back to Jesus highlights something that God has said and spoken on plenty of times in the Old Testament. God repeatedly told his people that I would rather have you obey than sacrifice. I would rather you obey the commands that I've given than for you to have to go kill an animal and to bring a sacrifice to me. Just obey, don't sacrifice. That's what I desire. And I believe what the Bible is showing us here and the man's response gives us back to, back to this idea that if we were to actually live out the greatest commandment perfectly, we would fulfill the law of God. Let me show you the Ten Commandments to make sense of it. The first four commandments out of the ten, if you were to love God supremely, you would keep all four of those. And the last six, if you were to love others genuinely, you would keep all six of those. But the Bible is clear, and and Jesus is pointing to the reality to us here that none of us have obeyed perfectly. And this man, he's not far from the kingdom of God, but he's not there yet. Because it's impossible for him to do under his own strength. Christian, Jesus is not lessening the load on us in the greatest commandment. He's actually upping the ante. I mean, think about it with me. Who could stand up today and say that, let's just take the last seven days of your life. 
that you have loved God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Who could say that? And then not only have you loved God in that way, you've loved him supremely in every way, shape, and form, but, but then you've also loved your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor meaning anyone you've come into contact with. So, so not only have you shown a supreme love for God, but you've also loved others perfectly. No one can do it. And it points to this reality that Jesus is trying to get us to see here. That we can know what we're supposed to do all day long, but left to ourselves, we have no power to actually do it. This scribe can know all day long that he is supposed to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, that he's going to love God supremely and love others genuinely, but if he is left to himself, he cannot do it. And so the natural question for us becomes, if Jesus commands it, surely there's a reason why. Like if he told us this is the people that you and I need to become, there, there must be a reason why. There must be at least a way that we can seek to live this out and to show you that reality. Because I, I hope right now you're feeling the weight of this. Because I think for, for too often we've thought of the greatest commandment as something easy. Yeah, I can love God and I can love people. That's easy. But do you love God with all of who you are? Do you love others just as much as you love yourself? And I hope you feel the weight of that and the pressure of that. And so the question becomes, what can ever change us as God's people? To show you that, I want to go to Romans chapter 7 with you. Romans chapter 7, I'm going to show you a quick little thing from the Apostle Paul, where Paul understands this inner turmoil that the Christian feels and experiences. And I want you to hear the hope that we have together. Romans chapter 7, verses 22 to 24, I'll put it up on the screen for you. Paul says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you feel the tension that Paul feels in this moment? What he's highlighting for us is he says, deep in his heart, he delights in the law of God. So deep within his innermost being, he wants to obey God perfectly. He wants to love God with all of his heart. He wants to love God supremely more than any other love and any other devotion in his life. And he wants to love his neighbor as himself. He wants to fulfill the law that God has given him. But he says that there is this other thing that is waging war against who he is, that his flesh and his sin is waging war against him. And so while he knows what he should do in his heart, left to himself, he is actually powerless to carry it out. And we should feel this. This is us. That we see what Jesus is commanding. But if we were honest, we've not been able to do it. And so Paul asks the beautiful question at the end of that verse, and he says, what can change me? What can change me? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Pick back up in verse 25 with me. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. As we close our time out today, I want to leave you with three quick things that I think we need to take away as we seek to live in obedience to the greatest commandment. Number one is this, love God supremely because he has first loved you. You remember my story back in the beginning of being an eight or nine-year-old kid laying awake at night, unable to sleep. That didn't go anywhere. I just learned how to suppress it as a kid. I didn't become a Christian. I didn't actually trust in Christ at that age. And it wasn't until just a few years later when I got into my teenage years that I had someone share with me the good news of Jesus Christ for the very first time. And at that moment, my heart came alive. And it was that fear and insecurity that fell away. When I started to think of, this is how I know I'm getting it right. It's not mine to do. Jesus accomplished it for me. I'm always going to fall short. I'm never going to obey perfectly. And someone told me that Jesus came to die in my place for my sin because I could never get it right. And if you're a Christian, that is your story. And if you're not a Christian and you're here today, this is where getting it right begins, at the cross of Jesus. John tells us in 1 John that if you love God, you love him not because you figured it out, not because you heard a good sermon, not because you came to an intellectual ascent of the truth. If you love God, you love him because God first loved you. And so if we're going to seek to live out the greatest commandment, it first starts with us understanding that the God of the universe, the almighty creator, transcendent God, has set his love and affection on you all of your unworthiness and all of your just uncleanliness and all of your sin and all of your, all of your shame, he said, I'm going to send Jesus for, for them. And that's where it starts. The second thing we need to do is don't walk according to your own strength, but walk empowered by the Spirit of God. Paul points us to that at the end of Romans chapter 8 that we just read a moment ago. He says, those things are are ours for people who walk not according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. These are spiritual realities we're dealing with. And if you ever want to love God supremely and love others genuinely, you're never going to muster it up under your own strength. It is impossible. And you'll be like the scribe who got that close, but never got there. It can only come as we are empowered by the Spirit of God with this new heart that Jesus has placed deep inside of us. Then the third thing. The third thing, and this is simple, we're called to love others unselfishly. The good news about all of this is that we have hope, we have purpose, and we have life. And one of the greatest things that you and I can do for our neighbors, those not with us here, those people you interact with every day, those people you live beside, those family members, one of the greatest acts of love that we could ever give to them is to take the good news about God's son Jesus and share it with a world that is in desperate need of it. 
And so a supreme love for God gives way to a deep, passionate love for others. And so the commission is this, love God with everything you have and go love others unselfishly, not seeking anything in return, but with all that you are. Let's pray together. So we get ready to pray. I'm gonna invite our prayer team forward and they're gonna be in their places. God, we just come before you today and we are grateful for your great love and your, your great mercy with which you have loved us. Though we don't deserve one single bit of it, God, you have given us your son freely. And so, Father, we thank you for your grace today. And I want to ask that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to become the people who each day fall more and more in love with you. And we love others as we have loved ourselves. God, we know we can't do it alone. We need your help. So we ask for it today in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you guys to stand. The prayer team's going to be down front as the band plays one last song. I figure no better way than to go out than to declare our love for God and let's declare how desperately we are for him.